Sorry, I uh, I got home at like 2 p.m. last night. <laughs> Exhausted as hell. Um, <laughs> all good. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying all good. Like, I'm, I'm also pretty wiped myself. I was at a wedding working until 3.30 a.m. last night, so I feel like we're all there. Oh, I I, I, I did something fun. So I'm going <laughs> oh, yeah. to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> My my drummer's band was playing at basement uh, two five four last night. It was a pretty wild set. My name's Jack. Uh, I'm a bartender and a shop steward down at uh, the Gladstone Hotel, uh, and I'm the candidate uh, for the Communist Party of Canada Ontario for Davenport riding. Uh, my name is Gunez Agduk. I'm the Communist Party of Ontario Canada Ontario candidate for Parkdale High Park. I'm a worker and peace advocate. I'm also part of the Toronto Association for Peace and Solidarity, and I am a, a prospective union member with the IATC Local 58. But as the pandemic has pretty much devastated our industry, so that's a bit on hold for now. How long have you been involved with the party? Uh, so I joined the party. Of, I had my first meeting in uh, May of 2021, so about a year ago. And I officially put, did my pledge and became a member around that same summer in June. Or excuse me, no, it would have been in September more, uh, more accurately. So yeah, it's been almost like a full year of membership for me. Yeah, I uh, similarly joined... Like I think a lot of people did uh, during the pandemic. So I had my first meeting, I think it was in October of 2020. Uh, and then full membership sometime around my birthday. So it would have been in January. And then just over a year and a half now as a full member of the party. Recently, actually, uh, my club in the party, we had so much growth over the last uh, year and a half that we actually kind of had to separate into three smaller clubs just so that they were manageable. So I've been the organizer now of our new club and we're still growing. So yeah, I think the pandemic, you know, Gunas and I both joined and a lot of people kind of had their eyes opened up by it as well. Reading the Communist Party's actual platform and then comparing it with, say, the NDP, the one that people treat as the ostensibly left party, or the difference would be that the Com Party's platform is immediate, it's direct, like this is what we need to enact, this is what we will do. Whereas the NDP almost reads like how I would write a cover letter for a job <laughs> application. Um, and I don't mean to be snide, it's just there's a lot of vagueness or putting things off into the future in a way that negotiates itself down. Most immediately I found in that was the uh, uh, the Com Party's minimum wage platform is $23 an hour and to maintain it relative to the cost of living, which is a fucking solution. It's certainly a way to tackle fucking poverty. <laughs> uh, the NDP, on the other hand, was $20 an hour in 2026 with predictable $1 an hour increases annually uh, and bringing targeted supports to small businesses without necessarily describing what those small, small businesses are seems like that was language from the CFIB. I watched each of your videos that were on Twitter earlier today. Uh, and Gunesh, you spoke about something that I've been interested in for the last couple of years was the uh, immense privatization of real estate, especially in our neighborhood. I mean, we've seen Starlight over on Triller, you know, in enacting massive rent increases or rent evictions, creating a system to charge people to pay their rent. Um, there were a few others that uh, have tenant strikes that were 
essentially like a mass movement around tenor organization. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the um, the party's platform on housing. Absolutely, yeah. The housing and affordability issues, I think, are where our platform stands out in its ability, or more accurately, how seriously it takes the interconnectedness of uh, issues regarding poverty. So for example, um, you brought up the NDP platform. And one thing I noticed about, and it's not exclusive to the NDP at all, um, but all the bourgeois party platforms is that they treat all of these issues as separate and they see the movements as separate movements that they want to address and appease. Whereas our party, like we see the issue of a $23 minimum wage intrinsically linked with paying 20% of your income as rent. Because if you're working full time at $23 an hour, 20% of your rent is roughly $800. So when parties talk about affordable housing, they're not really talking about it in these concrete terms. They're saying words like affordable to essentially coddle voters into thinking they have some sort of plan, when in, in reality, their plan is fooling people into thinking that they have a plan so they can get into government. So that's what I really appreciate about our platform is we recognize that there is a minimum amount of money that people ha- like need to earn in order to survive in the city. And it's not on a wide spectrum. So that number is $23. Once people are earning that money and they're paying 20% of that money in rent only, their quality of life increases immediately because they automatically have more to spend on things to increase their quality of life because 90% or 80% uh, or 60% of their income is no longer going to rent. Another holistic thing that the the party covers is um, when you talk about pensions, And there was a movement maybe in the 60s or 70s when housing was still under $100,000 per unit. But there were there was a time when, you know, hippies and artists could afford a house or a second property and bought it as a chance to build a pension. And they might respond a bit defensively to the idea of, say, housing is a human right or public ownership is housing because they would feel as though their, quote unquote, pension is at stake. Um, and I was wondering how either of you um, would respond to something like that or how the, the platform would go. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, I think that to Gunnar's point, the interconnectivity of it all is something that's lost because the movement of investment in housing, you know, and investing in investment property and like kind of retail property becoming more and more common like in the late 60s and early 70s, it's not a coincidence that that occurred at the same time as like workers rate wages started to significantly stagnate and decline. You know, I mean, it's because there was this little bit of sleight of hand where people were able to be kind of tricked into thinking they were wealthier and wealthier because they were holding on to property when in actuality, of course, you know, you need to live in your, (laughs) you need to live in your house. If it's worth, you know, a million, two million bucks, that's great. But when you sell it, you need to buy a new spot. So, I mean, for me, that's something that to counter the frustration that might come up when people, you know, landlords really, when they're frustrated about thinking about housing as a human right, it's just don't think about your money as being sunk into your house because it's kind of like a false value. You need to focus more on your wages, right? And I think that this overfixation on property values leads to a bunch of other tertiary problems as well, like over-policing of neighborhoods or those kind of violent encampment clearings that we saw 
and do see in parks all over the city and all over the province that are happening more and more because people only think about and and in a lot of ways are locked into the fact that their house or their housing is where all of their money is stored as they see it. So instead of having this kind of uh, solidaristic approach that you could get through like unionizing at your workplace or something like that, it's almost this mutually assured destruction thing where everyone's kind of fighting against one another to increase the value of their own housing. But I mean, the reality of the situation is, is everyone's standard of living will increase, you know, like a high tide raises all boats kind of thing. Putting everyone in housing would just address most of these problems in a much more humane way than just trying to sweep it under the rug so that people can try to make a buck. I guess the other thing I would mention too is that our program is specifically targeted at individuals and corporations who are hoarding the most housing. Folks who are trying to secure their future inside like an investment property are generally not the target of housing as a human right or uh, like housing for people not profit movements because at the end of the day as, as you mentioned earlier housing is being consolidated in the hands of like fewer and fewer investment trusts and real estate corporations and that is what is resulting in their ability through like leverage of just owning so much property to raise rents at exorbitant and unreasonable rates and so that's something I, I want to I guess make clear is that at the end of the day we're coming for the folks who have the most in order to give to the folks who have the least when you're in grade five and stuff and you're learning about government I feel like that's what they tell you they're like the government was created so that we could distribute things in a more equitable manner and that's the point. One of the things that I was a bit nervous asking that question about was like, I didn't want to come off as being like, but what about the landlords? Like, who's thinking of the landlords? And the answer is all the other fucking parties. <laughs> Did you mention this already? Um, there's a significant expansion to rent geared income, affordable housing units, and transitional units. They're treating them all as individually needed things as part of a larger holistic system. Exactly. I think one important aspect too is the rent rollback because it actually addresses the problems that uh, like of how high rent is for people today, um, which again is something other parties are not addressing that folks are paying upwards of $2,000 a month for a one bedroom apartment. And we want to roll that back to 20% of their income too. The idea that nobody is left behind. Yeah, that was probably one of the most exciting things that I saw on the platform was actually trying to put money back into people's pockets. Something that was really interesting to me, just, you know, being online and seeing some of the, um, the parties public facing materials. I didn't know that we had services delisted from our healthcare. I believe it was physiotherapy, um, eye care, and there was one other that I, I can't quite remember. It's totally true. And I think there are big sections of the delisting that happen. But the thing that's kind of surprising is all the little tiny ones, like the procedures that are covered up to a certain point, that's kind of surprising. You know, I'm sure we've all been to like a walk-in clinic or something for something really simple, like I broke my toe kind of recently or something like that and went up and, you know, the whole thing was free, except at some point there was some charge that I had to pay that was like 25 bucks, you know, something really small like that. And I kind of said, oh, that's, you know, kind of surprised that it wasn't covered by OHIP. And the doctor was just like, yeah, it was covered up until like three years ago. And then they just delisted it. They do stuff like that all the time. It's kind of insidious, you know, because I feel like Canadians 
and Ontarians, and maybe fairly so, are, are pretty proud of and precious about our healthcare system. But in a way, it kind of puts blinders up on us because we think it's something that's immutable. It's something that was just with the foundation of, you know, the Canadian state, such as it is, that it just was healthcare. But, you know, it's something that was hard fought for and hard won. And as we become a bit more passive about it, conservative and and liberal governments uh, in the past have, and, and NDP for that matter, have made some pretty substantial and serious cuts. And the trend is not reversing. It's something that I think to your point is, is very serious because right now it's, for me, it's, you know, maybe 20 bucks, 25 bucks here and there. But for people who don't have uh, coverage because of their citizenship status or because they're migrant farm workers or whatever it is, I mean, it's they're really they're the ones paying through the nose. Or if they go to seek care at all, oftentimes they won't even be able to get it. So, I mean, healthcare, especially at the end of a pandemic, is not something where we should be trying to find that that sweet spot of profit and coverage. You know, it should be ensuring coverage to all people because, you know, good health outcomes are something that benefit everyone, even if it's just at the individual level. I mean, in my workplace right now, we're having a problem where we're getting kind of these rolling COVID outbreaks. And one of the reasons is because the sickness recovery benefit, you know, such as it was, that the government was offering during the uh, COVID pandemic has come to an end, or for a good chunk of staff, they've been sick so many times now that they can't get coverage at all because they've just used up the allotment. So they have to come to work after whatever it is, the five days, and they're obviously still contagious. And it just knocks off another group of people. And, you know, we've been getting these every three months, we get these big waves of outbreaks at my workplace. And there's just really nothing people can do because, you know, they need to pay rent. Was one of the uh, services of delisted uh, ambulance services, or is that something else that they just start charging for? Uh, I believe ambulance services have not been covered for quite some time. I actually remember back in 2000 and uh eight or nine i had a friend over at like our house and she like had a like broke open her knee or something like that and had to get taken to hospital and the ambulance ride was like 90 dollars. i mean i find that those kinds of um almost like what seem like petty payments and they are for some people but not others of course serve the purpose of conditioning us as well to expect to pay when we're receiving healthcare services from now on so that when more things get delisted and as we have to pay for more healthcare there's like a seamless transition for some folks where one day you're paying for one thing here and there or two things here and there and then the next day you're paying for the whole visit so I think it definitely is serving that purpose. When people ask us about our healthcare program, the first thing I say usually is head to toe, cradle to tomb. And the idea being that you're covered from your head to your toes, including your brain. So that's mental health care, dental care, pharmaceutical care, and physical health care from the moment you're born. So that's deliveries to the moment you die. And that includes your funeral. Parkdale has a lot of long-term care homes and we know how many just how many folks died in those privatized homes uh, and the rate at which they were dying um, in the privatized versus the public homes privatization uh, and when we talk about healthcare from cradle to tomb it includes um, nationalizing and putting into public control uh, the long-term care system 
the child care system, uh, the things that we do together as a society to take care of each other. And in order to like prevent a catastrophe like the one we experienced during COVID, we as a province should learn from our mistakes and not let uh, the greedy CEOs and corporations, uh, long-term care corporations decide the fate of our seniors in the future. Covering those things prevent people from falling into poverty by virtue of having these exorbitant medical bills that our friends in the South are like uh, more conditioned to than we are. But I don't think we should be complacent and make the mistake of thinking that our governments don't want us in the in those positions, because at the end of the day, every bourgeois government benefits when workers are starving and clawing and fighting for scraps, basically. Yeah, and I mean, it has some really insidious knock-on effects, as you know, Danny, and, and union organizing too, you know. There's definitely moments when you're looking at a collective bargaining agreement and you recognize the importance of getting healthcare coverage for members. And at a point in the negotiations where you've maybe used all the leverage you have, it's something that you're going to prioritize. But if that becomes a bigger and bigger chunk of what you're negotiating for, wages and working conditions, pension contributions are going to start to have to take a backseat. So, you know, workers really lose twice when these kinds of delistings and cuts are made. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about Bill 124 and uh, the importance of repealing it. Yeah, Bill 124 is a bill that was introduced, I think, two years ago now, maybe three. And its effect was essentially to halt the process of free collective bargaining uh, and fix wage increases in some sectors to 1% per, per year. The biggest one that I think people have heard about this, if you've heard about this bill, you've probably heard about it through nurses unions because they've kind of been on the forefront of the battle against it. The thing that, of course put it into kind of sharp contrast was the COVID pandemic, because we've all heard stories about nurses working these crazy, insane hours and shifts, putting themselves at risk and on the line, and for wages and working conditions that are subpar to say the least, and that they actually can't do anything to fight for. You know, in a lot of ways, the pandemic kind of allowed people to realize how vitally important those healthcare workers are to a functioning society, and gave them more leverage in negotiations than they than people may have realized they otherwise had before but this put a restriction on their ability to legally bargain for wages and working conditions so i mean our party not only would repeal bill 124 but would put a ban on any sort of legislation that puts limits on free collective bargaining i think it's no secret to anyone who's in the labor movement uh, that the deck is already stacked considerably in the favor of employers and putting limits on negotiations like this, you know, it's uh, kind of is throwing workers under the bus, really. And I mean, my fear is it's just kind of the beginning. Bill 88 is also one that I think about a lot, which had the Digital Platform Workers Fairness Act or something like that, you know, one of those really fancy sounding names, but it's essentially just uber crafted legislation kind of slowly being brought in piece by piece as part of their work plus program into the province. And, you know, working in the service industry, I feel like similarly, we're on the front lines of this kind of privatization and this contracting out that's happening, not just in service, but also in healthcare and education. And I mean, it's it's terrible. It, not only does it uh, hurt wages and working conditions, but it, at least in the, in particular, in the case of healthcare, 
uh, I mean, it leads to worse patient care. That's not a secret. You know, it leads to worse educational outcome for students. You know, this is this is all really well known, but it's taking a backseat to profit as privatization and union busting kind of become the forefront of this government's uh, mission. Oh, you know what? I did have a question. Um, I want to ask what how it's been on street canvassing or door knocking, what the experience has been like for, for both of you. Uh, folks are enthusiastic for sure. I mean, most of the time an interaction I will lead in interacting, I will lead with our housing campaign, mostly because in Parkdale, especially like pests, disrepair, uh, high rents are a huge issue among tenants. And our platform is one of the one, one of the few that actually covers like licensing for buildings so that um, they would be regularly inspected for pests and inspected for uh, like to make sure that the repairs are up to code and etc. So I'm usually confronted with enthusiasm on the housing campaign. That being said, I mean, there is the odd person that it's funny, they will see what we are fighting for. And they'll be like, Oh, all these things are great. And then they'll see the word communist and almost like a flip will switch in their head. And all of a sudden, like all of the things we're fighting for are the most evil things that anyone's ever heard of. But fortunately, those folks are like few and far between. And most people, People are interested in engaging with ideas that are outside of the mainstream parties because they're starting to recognize that those parties fight for a very specific class interest that represents very few people. Yeah, I'd say I've had a pretty similar experience, to be honest. Uh, we have mainstreeted, I don't know, four or five times now and gone on door knocking uh, a couple times a week since uh the writ dropped. And I'll, I'll be honest, I was, a, I was a little nervous at the start, you know, people in my personal life know my politics, but actually putting my name on a ballot was a little bit intimidating for sure. And to actually show up to someone's door and be like, knock, 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 you know, hey, I'm the candidate, you got a minute to talk was a little odd. But to Gunez's point, I mean, once we get talking about the platform, and particularly the housing platform, people just really open up. I mean, we had a day on the street where we were tabling, and you get a couple of curious glances. But once someone slows down for even a second, the question we were asking them was, hey, do you have a second to talk about how high rent is in the city right now? And, you know, suddenly you'd go from someone who sees someone with a clipboard on the sidewalk thinks they're trying to get sold something and just wants to walk by to like, they're talking your ear off about how terrible their landlord is and, you know, how brutal it is living in the city. And, oh my God, you know, I had to move during COVID and my rent doubled and stuff like that. So I think once people kind of start to realize the platform that we have and the issues that we're fighting for, they really come around. I mean, I've personally been pretty shocked by and really encouraged by the enthusiasm. Like I didn't know how the campaign was going to go and how people were going to react, especially in uh, riding where the party's run before, but maybe doesn't have as much of a as, of a presence, a recent presence like a, like it does in Parkdale. But people have been super receptive and and excited to see us out there to know that there is an alternative. Uh, Drew Garvey, the provincial leader, had an interview recently in the Maple, I think, and he said something that I think was really apt, which is people are starting to look at the polls and kind of starting to see the way the wind's blowing. And, you know, unfortunately, it looks like Doug Ford's going to get a second mandate here, whether it's a majority or another minority government, it's hard to say. Hopefully it's a minority. But because of that, um, people are able to kind of reflect on what their options are. They don't feel like they're necessarily, especially in an NDP safe riding like Davenport, they don't feel like they're going to be forced 
to vote to keep someone out of office when they can see the inevitable coming. So they want to vote their conscience. They want to vote for their actual politics. And over the course of the campaign, I think a lot of people have learned that it's in line with our parties and our party's platform. Yeah, well said. That was exactly my experience. Like I was texting you, Jack, um, until I saw the uh, the ballot and you know found that you Ganesh were running. I was going to spoil my ballot because um, I wasn't particularly moved, inspired, or excited about what I've been hearing from anyone. Uh, certainly not by a a campaign launch photograph that has your party's leader dressed up as Ray from Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I saw one on Twitter the other day that was making me laugh. It was one of the uh, NDP candidates for here in the city. And they, tw- they had retweeted, uh, Doug Ford's budget has just come out. And I know that you're all probably just as upset as I am. So here's something that's going to make you happy. And like, it was a little photo. And I'm thinking, as it's loading on my Twitter, I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be the NDP's policy alternatives. Let's see what they've got to say. But it was just a photo of that MPP, like just kind of posing at something like with a thumbs up. And I was like, oh, it's just just you at some sort of convention. I guess that's fun. I'm glad you had a good weekend. <laughs> I don't really know what that does for us, though. <laughs> There's maybe a chance that uh, during this election or maybe even listening to this podcast, uh, this is maybe the first time someone's hearing about the the Communist Party, just like I did uh, during uh the 2018 election when I had that leaflet dropped in my door. And I think the thing that's made a real impact for me and uh, my life after joining the party has been the fact that it's not a, we don't view politics as something that happens once every four years at a ballot box. It's something that's a, you know, 365 day a year struggle. So, you know, wherever you might be listening from, Uh, And however you might vote this election, you know, I encourage you to take a look at our platform and take a look at the work that we're doing in this election, but also beyond and before. And if you find that the work that the party's doing and the struggles that we're kind of committed in align with the change that you want to see in in Ontario and Toronto and Canada, uh, that you get involved with the party. Once the election's over, June 2nd comes and goes until there's another fundraising opportunity you're not going to hear much from the NDP. You're not going to hear much from the liberals. I hope you're not on any email lists for the conservatives. If you are, you know, my condolences. Uh, But I really do hope that people realize that, you know, we're facing an imminent crisis of capital. And it's not something that we can wait until the next election or the next by-election is called to try to resolve because we can't and we probably can't resolve it at the ballot box anyways. So we have to get out in the streets. We have to mobilize, have to organize, be it at your workplace or with uh, your neighbors in in your apartment building. I encourage people, regardless of how they vote or if they vote at all, um, they take a look at what the party's doing because, uh, you know, we're going to wake up on June 3rd and get right back to it. (laughs) 